Would you open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 20? That's the fourth Gospel in the New Testament. And although we're going to take a few minutes to make our way to John 20, and by the way, that's page 906 if you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, and I do hope that all of you will open a copy of the Word of God before you, so whether it's that printed copy uh, or an electronic copy that you have, go ahead and open to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. We'll come to this in a few minutes, uh, but I want to lay a little groundwork first, so bear patiently with me. Let's pray, though, and ask for God's continued blessing over our time together. Great God and King, as we continue to celebrate this mighty, miraculous resurrection, we give you our thanks that the work has been finished, that the sacrifice and shedding of your blood on the cross was the full and free sacrifice. There's nothing left to be added to it, and so when you declare it from the cross, it is finished. We have confidence and joy to know that our debt is paid. Sin has been removed, that you have freed us from that bondage, from that enslavement, and brought us into an entirely new life in order that we might know you, follow you, and serve you. I ask, dear Spirit of God, that you would make the gospel truth real for each person here today, that you would meet us where we are, some with great doubts, some with great fears, some who have carried great sorrow into their heart, even sorrows that no one else knows about, but it rests heavy upon their souls this morning. They are in need of your voice, your presence. Some who cherish their sin more than the Savior and who can't see it fully, but really are captive to that sin. Now, I pray that you would have mercy upon that soul and release the grip of sin where it has long been fastened and bring life and light, liberty. These are just a few of the needs that are represented here, but there's not one of us, Lord Jesus, who can live another day apart from you. We need you. And so we pray that out of your goodness and grace, you would draw near to us, reveal yourself to us, and in particular, reveal yourself to us as the Lord and God that you are, and move us in our souls to believe, move us in our minds to receive your truth. Move us in our hearts to submit fully. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take a look this morning at the Apostle Thomas. He often has another adjective attached to his name, doesn't he? Doubting Thomas. I think that's unfortunate. And in fairness to Thomas, we should probably avoid referring to him as Doubting Thomas. I think if we could get to know Thomas, we would find out, and especially if we were to listen to him, that he would say, I'm not so much a doubter as I'm a realist. Now, 
Some of those who define themselves as realists would be known by other people as pessimists. You know, they're the ones who, because of life's experiences or certain perspective, tend to see worst-case scenarios. They want to talk about it, plan for it, and prepare for it. And I think Thomas might fall into that category. There are some who have said, you know, there are advantages to having pessimists for your friends. And you say, what would the advantage of a pessimist be? And someone said a number of years ago, and I thought, this is really wise. Maybe I should make some friends among the pessimists. They said, you know, if you borrow money from pessimists, they never expect you to pay it back. (laughs) So I thought, so it might be worth making the acquaintance of some pessimists. A true pessimist can be hard to live with, though. Because their mind does go to the fact that the glass is half empty, that the world could end tomorrow, you know, that we're all doomed to suffer some difficulty in life, and some of you are already thinking of faces and names. The Apostle Thomas may have been that kind of man. I think that would be unfair to categorize him either as a doubter or a pessimist. I do see him as a a realist. I say that in part because there are three particular occasions in the Gospel of John where things that Thomas said are included in the Gospel account. It's interesting because the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't include any of these stories about Thomas or words that he said. They make reference to him. But it's John who takes a few key things that Thomas said or questions that he asked and he begins to build what I think is a really powerful gospel narrative that climaxes here in chapter 20 before us and we'll come there in a moment. Let me review the first two stories that John includes in his gospel. The first one is back in John 11, the second in John chapter 14, the third here in the chapter before us. In each of them there is a significant conversation with Jesus where Thomas expresses some concern or some outright doubt that many of us wrestle with. The first one in chapter 11 has to do with what he, what he esteems to be the inevitability of death. Let me tell you just briefly about that occasion. When John 11 opens, the news has just come to Jesus and his disciples that a very dear friend named Lazarus is sick, and it seems to be a terminal illness. Now, Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha, and this is a family that Jesus loved very dearly. Uh, We actually spent time in last Sunday's service looking at that beautiful scene where the sister, Mary, anoints the feet of Jesus with her dowry. I mean, it is an extravagant gift. That's the Mary whose brother is now terminally ill. Jesus tells the disciples, this sickness is not unto death, and then he waits for two days before he goes to Bethany, uh, where Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus lives, but by that time, Lazarus has died. Well, when Jesus announces that they're going to go to Bethany, you, you need to know that Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem, and the religious leaders in Jerusalem have become so upset with Jesus and his ministry at this point that they're already plotting his death. The disciples are aware of this. And if you go back to John 11 and look at verse 8, they say to Jesus, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? That's a reasonable question. Jesus actually begins to speak to them in a a little different way. And as he so often does, the the angle or approach that he takes to a a situation in life is not what most of us would, would take. And he says to them in verse 14 of John 11, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there. Listen to this. That seems harsh, doesn't it? I'm glad I was not there so that 
you may believe, but let us go to him. Now it's in response to that, the very next verse, that John records the words of Thomas, the realist, or the pessimist, depending on where you stand at the moment. But Thomas, also called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Way to go, Thomas. There is humor in that, but there's a lot of realism. Now, you have to give Thomas some courage, first for his loyalty to Jesus and his courage. I mean, this is not an overblown threat that they've gotten wind of. As a matter of fact, we really are, even at this point in John 11, closer to the betrayal, the trial, the condemnation and crucifixion of Jesus than any of these disciples can imagine. You see, Thomas recognizes that following Jesus brings great risk to him. But he's also wrestling at a level that all of us deal with, don't we? The inevitability of death. And when you're young, it seems distant, so far away. The older you get, the more real it becomes. Sometimes terminal illness creeps into your family. And it's particularly devastating when it shows up in the life of someone that you would say, they're so young, they're so healthy, so vibrant. How could this happen to them? Death appears before us in all forms. Thomas is dealing with a particular manifestation, if you will, or a particular means of threat, but it's still inevitable to him. And, you know, it really is inevitable for all of us. I don't think this is pessimistic at all. I think it's realistic. For Thomas at that point, the threats that awaited Jesus and the disciples in Jerusalem needed to be factored in. But think again of what Jesus said in in verse 15, because he's not oblivious to the threat, yet he says, for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. You see, what he's actually gonna do is bring the tragic death of Lazarus and the imminent or inevitable threat of death in Jerusalem together in one powerful answer to the concerns, if not outright objections, of disciples like Thomas. And Thomas and the other disciples need to believe something in relationship to their fear of death. What is that? Well, you read on in John 11 and you come to verse 25 where Jesus appears and Mary and Martha interact with Jesus and and one of the sisters says to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And that's true. But then Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she gives a sweet answer as far as her theology can carry her at that point. And she makes reference to believing that there is a future resurrection. But Jesus is not talking about a future event at that moment, is he? No, he's locating a powerful truth in himself. He's going to go to the tomb of Lazarus and actually miraculously call the dead man out of his grave in just a few moments. But that's not actually the greatest point. The point that he's making is that resurrection is not something out there or beyond us in a a distant time. What he is talking about, the resurrection and the life, is who he is. And that's a truth that Mary and Martha and Lazarus not only need to experience, but it's a truth that disciples like Thomas, who see the inevitability of death itself coming toward them, need to get firmly in their hearts and believe it in a way that makes them fearless in the life to come. So that's the first little story of Thomas saying some things where Jesus has a powerful word to grow his faith and to build it. 
And I, I pause right here and ask, do you have your own set of fears and concerns about the inevitability of death? Because if you do, here is one who not only says there is a resurrection and life to come, he actually says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Second story that includes Thomas is found in John 14. Jesus has gathered disciples as they are uh, preparing for Passover and Jesus knows exactly what is coming, his betrayal and crucifixion, and he's been telling them, I'm gonna go away, I'm gonna die. And they're starting to clue in a little bit and it's created this great distress in their souls and so he says in John 14, one, don't let your hearts be troubled. Listen to this again. It sound, there's an echo of John 11. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And now he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Now there's a whole lot taking place here, but pause for just a moment and put yourself in the disciples' shoes and, and walk in Thomas's, or I should say sandals, right? Thomas, like the other disciples, has a troubled heart. It's agitated, it's stirred up, he's anxious, and for good reason. So it's not all about being a pessimist at this particular point. Again, there's reason for them to be troubled and anxious, just like there's reasons for us to be troubled in this day and age. I mean, some of us wake up every morning kind of like this, like, I don't want to see what's outside in the world. You know, it's just, it's just overwhelming. So we can relate. We know what it is to be agitated, to be stressed emotionally, to be stirred up. And Jesus says, I, I don't want your hearts to be troubled. But Notice what he connects it to. He's saying to them, you believe in God, believe also in me. Put your trust in me. Now, Jesus knows what is about to unfold. He knows that by the, the end of this particular week that they are living through, they're gonna be so terrified by what takes place that they'll all scatter into the darkness. That they'll go into hiding, actually, for a number of days after the death and, re, and even after the reported resurrection. But he's calling them to live by faith. And Thomas, in verse five, says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So he's thinking more in literal terms, like there's a destination in place. Like maybe Jesus is gonna relocate to the Sea of Galilee again. That was his, that was his home territory. Uh, maybe Jesus has another destination in mind. But Jesus isn't talking about a physical destination, is he? He's actually talking about a future dwelling, and yes, heaven is physical, it's real in the sense that we can be present there, but Jesus is not talking about a destination on earth. He, he is fast forwarding to that place where disciples like Thomas have lived out their days on earth and then arrive in the Father's house. But Thomas seems to have a little bit of a immature understanding, and I, I don't use that word to denigrate him at all. It's just not fully developed. But notice how Jesus answers him in John 14, verse six. He doesn't answer the question, where? He tells Thomas, who? He says to Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Basically, it's like, Thomas, you actually know the way because you know me. I am that way. Put your faith in me, stick with me, and you will arrive at the appointed destination. 
I'm going to go there for a short term to finish preparing the household of my father. I'm preparing a place for you, Thomas. I'm preparing a place for you, Peter, James, John, all the rest of them as they gathered there. And you know, for those of you whose faith is in Jesus Christ, he's preparing a place for you too right now. And we say, what's taking so long to finish this? We're ready to be there. You see, he calls them to believe not simply that there is a heavenly household somewhere, but that he himself is the one who's the way, the truth, and the life. You see, the answer to our misapprehensions about the unknowns of our future destiny, just as they were for Thomas, are all answered in Jesus, every one of them. So maybe you, like Thomas, are a little perplexed, uncertain, if not fearful, about your eternal destiny. Jesus says to you today, I am the way. I am the way. Now, You've been patiently waiting for us to get to John 20. Your Bibles are open there, so look with me at verse 24. This is after the resurrection. All of the other disciples have seen Jesus personally except Thomas. And so many years later when the apostle John wrote this particular gospel, he includes this little uh, piece of the story for our encouragement and help. So verse 24 tells us, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Just ponder that for a moment. Thomas the realist. He's saying, I want empirical evidence. Does he not trust these guys? I don't think that's what it's about. I think just by nature, he's a guy that wants proof. Some of you want proof. Nothing wrong with that. There might be other words that we could use aside from realism, skepticism, number of headings under which we could place ourselves at a particular moment, but what I want you to see uh, in this passage is just how beautifully and personally Jesus deals with those concerns that Thomas has. But he stated it emphatically, I will not believe. So the story continues, verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace with you. That's the traditional Jewish greeting. Nothing out of the ordinary there. And of course, that verse raises a lot of speculation. Did Jesus, you know, pass through a wall? It doesn't really tell us. It just says that they were there, huddled behind the, you know, the locked door, and suddenly Jesus is there. What is important, though, is how the conversation unfolds. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. How did Jesus know those were the very points of doubt, of questioning that Thomas was wrestling with in the same way that he knows each one of us? He knows you intimately. He knows you personally. He knows your set of doubts. He knows your set of objections. He knows your fears. And he's never been intimidated by those. 
they're not even off-putting to him. But Jesus does say to Thomas, you want proof? Here I am. I was thinking of Hebrews 4, verse 13, that tells us no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are laid bare and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It's a terrifying thing to be known fully. Nobody wants to be exposed in all of their real humanity. We, we want to put the best stuff forward. We don't want people to know the flaws and imperfections and the deep sin, the guilt. But it's all known to Jesus. And he knew exactly what was in Thomas's heart, just like he knows what's in ours. You know, aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't come to crush Thomas in apologetic judgment? Could have. He could have said, Thomas, why didn't you believe your brothers? Why didn't you believe the dear ladies who witnessed my resurrection? Why are you so hard-hearted? It's not what he said. He just goes right to that place where Thomas is struggling. And not only to prove that he's resurrected, but to but to call out, if you will, Thomas's faith. And Thomas makes this staggering confession. You know what's interesting? There's no indication in the text that Thomas actually placed his finger in the nail-scarred hands or touches that deep wound in Christ's side where the spear had been thrust into his chest cavity and then the water and blood had flowed out but it's clear by his confession that he is absolutely undone. And I think in many ways it's irrelevant whether he actually placed his finger into the nail-scarred hands or put his hand, as he had said, into that spear-scarred side of Christ. That's actually secondary. The greater thing that is happening at this moment is that his faith really is coming into full bloom for his confession, simple as it is, is deep and rich and profound, and it's the confession of faith that God would call all of us to personalize What does Thomas say? Look at the text. My Lord and my God. This is a man who at this moment has doubt erased. That's not to say he would never have doubts or questions or struggles at a point in time again. But for this moment, the Lord has personally appeared to him, demonstrated that he is victorious over sin. He has been victorious over death. The grave could not hold him. And here he is in his physical presence. When Thomas says, my Lord He is actually using terminology, especially for a devoted Jewish man that is an echo of the the Old Testament concept of God as Adonai. He's acknowledging he is the sovereign king of the universe. He is saying in that one little title, you are the one who commands my destiny, who controls my days, who legitimately calls me to activate my faith, believing in you. You are the one before whom I bow now in full surrender. And when, then when he says, my God, he personalizes both of these titles but he acknowledges that this is the only God who is worthy of his worship. 
the only God who is worthy of his adoration, his awe, his service. And you have to be struck by the fact that the God who stands before him does bear in his body the marks of the atonement. It would be impossible for Thomas to believe anything of eternal significance or substance apart from the nail-pierced hands. It's a beautiful symbol of all that Christ has done. And here is a man whose faith blooms beautifully in the presence of this God who laid down his life for his sins. One of the authors that I've benefited from through the years, particularly in the study of John, wrote of Thomas in this moment, the most unyielding skeptic has bequeathed to us the most profound confession. But there's more in this text. Look on with me at verse 29. Because John's not done telling the story. He's not just simply saying, hey, I want you to know about a friend of mine named Thomas. I want you to know about his faith struggle and faith development. No, he records the words of Jesus spoken to, to Thomas and the disciples immediately after. Jesus says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It is an, isn't it fascinating that the Lord himself does not think it is irrational to believe in something you have not personally seen? And John takes up that baton and runs with it. Look at verse 30. These are the words of the apostle John. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. And he's coming to the end of, of 20 chapters and he's gonna add a 21st. I mean, it's a, it's a substantial work, a substantial record of the signs, miraculous, that, that Jesus performed and the teaching uh, that he recorded for us. But look at verse 31. But these are written, like this sampling, this, this small sampling of the life and teaching and ministry of Jesus Christ. These are written so that you, the readers of this gospel, the hearers of this gospel message, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What a gift this gospel is. A gift that has been passed down through the generations. And here we are, 2,000 years beyond this, taking up the words in our own, thankfully, native tongue. At least for most of us, English is mine. I should speak for myself. The heart of Christ is revealed to us here in this gospel today. Stories that are not given just to, for us to turn into some kind of morality tale. Oh, if we could just live life like Jesus, the world would be a much better place. That's true, but it, the point is not just to live like Jesus. The point is to put your faith in him because he's the resurrection and the life and the inevitability of death, the death that approaches all of us, will take you down. It is unstoppable unless you're in right relationship with the one who's the resurrection and life. Questions that, that grip our hearts with fear and make us feel our vulnerability are answered in the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here, even in this chapter, the Lord promises a special blessing for those who have not seen and yet have believed. And John, picking up on that, compels us, please, 
You almost hear him saying, pleading with us, believe what I'm telling you, that you too may have life in his name. Christ has made the Father known to us so that people like Thomas, people like us would believe. Where is your faith today? Is it in Jesus? Or is it in your religious zeal? Is it in the Christ who shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins? Or is it in your capacity to be good and moral and hopefully have enough good works to outweigh the bad works when you stand in the presence of God one day? One of those is saving faith. The other would actually result in destruction. Yes, he is risen indeed. Risen that those who fancy themselves to be realists, even skeptics, might have the confidence and joy that Thomas knew on that day of seeing him for who he is, Lord and God. Let's pray together. Thank you, great God, that you have revealed yourself to us chiefly in your Son. The universe is full of your glory. We see your fingerprints everywhere. This planet, the solar system, the universe we're a part of is a testimony to your wisdom and power. But as glorious as all creation is, it does not tell us the story of redemption. It does not tell us that there is a way to be delivered from our guilt and fear, from sin and corruption. Thank you that you sent your son, that he is the perfect revelation of all that you are. Lord Jesus, we worship you today as Lord and God. Praise you. Praise you for the mystery of your incarnate existence. We praise you for the mystery of the cross and the resurrection. We praise you for things that we do not understand, but we praise you that you have also made the way of eternal life simple and clear. Spirit of God, would you summon every person here to the way. Extend that gracious call that guilty hearts may know freedom from the weight of their sin. That fearful hearts may be delivered from the anxiety and turmoil that troubles them day in, day out. That confused and even unbelieving hearts may be brought into that place of rest because you give the light of the gospel of the glory of God as it's revealed in the face of Jesus. Shine that light, we pray. Now, Father, would you seal to our hearts the word of Jesus, the work that he has done. And Spirit of God, would you take that deep into our souls that we would change as you desire, that we would believe as you have commanded, that we would follow you as we were created to do. These things we pray In Jesus' name, amen.